Hey, I want you to give you guys a heads up about a conference we have coming up May the 14th and 15th. It's called Fearless, Engaging Our Culture with Confidence. So we're going to have scholars from HBU, also our seminary, as well as practitioners as we learn how to engage the issues that we're all facing today in our society. So put that in your phones, put that in your calendars, mark it down May 14th, May 15th, uh, right here in the Worship Center. It's going to be a great great practical and relevant conference so mark that down on your calendar all right today's message i've entitled the silent killer the silent killer so today's message is pretty heavy it's a heavy message but it's a necessary message Years ago, someone wrote a novel about a young chess prodigy. The chess prodigy's uh, name was Beth Harmon. It was turned into a Netflix series called The Queen's Gambit. And in this story, you track the life of this young girl, Beth, who had lost both of her parents, goes into an orphanage, and then discovers that she has this incredible gift for chess. But a big part of the story, or story behind the story, is not just her chess prowess, but her addiction to pills and alcohol. And throughout this, it shows how her dependency spiraled in a way that really got out of control. And the whole time that she was taking these drugs and doing this, she was trying to cover or hide from the silent killer. Perhaps you remember the classic movie, kind of similar, called Good Will Hunting with Matt Damon. And in that, Matt Damon was a, uh, a guy who was a rebellious guy. He was a fighter, a street fighter. He was always going before the courts. He was always getting in trouble. But he was also a genius when it came to mathematics. But he also was trying to hide and escape from the silent killer. We all have ways we try to cope with this silent killer, whether it's perfectionism, whether it's narcissism, whether it's just running away. But the silent killer, it's not high blood pressure, though that is one, literally, The silent killer is shame. Really a specific kind of shame, what I would want to call toxic shame. Because there's a good kind of shame, a healthy shame. As a matter of fact, that's one of the problems we have in our country right now is our inability to blush, but that's an entirely different message. I'm talking about the toxic shame that gets inside of your heart and gets inside of your mind that makes you want to run away, that makes you want to hide, or makes you want to power up and act like you have no problems, you're not flawed, you're not weak. But shame can be a destructive and deadly force in our life. Carl Jung is probably the most, one of the most influential psychoanalysts uh, analysts in the history of the world. And Carl Jung said that shame is a soul-eating emotion. 
It's a soul-eating emotion. Shame has the ability to make you hate yourself in a deep and despairing way. Guilt is I've done something wrong. Shame is I am wrong. I I am defective. I I am less than. I don't have what it takes. And shame, when we deal with shame, oftentimes we deal with it in silence, in isolation. We hide behind trying to be perfect, trying to have it all together. We feel shameful about our past, shameful about our family, shameful about how we look, shameful about how we measure up or don't measure up in our culture. And we try to run and hide from it. Shame has been going on for a long dang time, as we say here in Texas, right? Open your Bible, the very first pages, you turn to chapter 3. And what do you find? You find Adam and Eve, they have this great, perfect relationship with themselves this, this wonderful sense of purpose, this wonderful sense of meaning in life, this great relationship with God. And then what happens? They rebel. They eat the forbidden fruit. We say it was an apple, but we really don't know. And all of a sudden, they feel alienated. They feel naked all of a sudden and exposed and filled with shame. So what do they do? They didn't have the Galleria. They didn't have Katie Mills Mall. They had fig leaves to cover themselves. We're going to go get some fig leaves. We're going to go do something to cover up our sense of alienation from one another and our sense of alienation from God. Why? Because the shame was so deep and so intense. So, So shame is endemic to the human condition. It's who we are. It's what we've inherited. Sometimes we have shame because of what we've done. Other times we have shame because of something that was done to us and we feel dirty and rejected and less than. We feel shame over our bodies. We feel shame over where we live or don't live. We feel shame over our lack of beauty, our lack of money, our lack of power. Shame. Toxic shame. It's a powerful force in our world today. And not just in our world, but in all of our hearts and minds, isn't it? I first started learning and hearing about shame back in the the late 80s, early 90s. There was a guy by the name of uh, Dr. John Bradshaw who wrote a book called Healing the Power of Shame. And of course, course, most recently, uh, Dr. Brene Brown, who's from Houston, uh, has spoken and written uh, eloquently about shame and its effects upon us. But the difficult thing about shame is how it kind of grows inside of us. And, and if you've been coming to 11.11 for a while, you know in the last past year I've been talking about the shadow voice. You know the shadow voice, that voice inside of your head that's always talking to you. 
always saying things to you. Many times the shadow voice is that negative voice, that condemning voice. And I would say many times the shadow voice traffics in the currency of toxic shame. That voice that says you're, you're not where you're supposed to be. That, that voice that says you were rejected, you will be rejected. That voice that says you don't measure up. That voice that says that you're never going to make it. Shame. It's out there. It's in here. It's been around for a long time. But God's aware of shame, isn't he? I mean, if there is a God and this God made this universe, then shame is not just some random sense of chemicals that's bubbled up over time. But shame is something that's very real and shame is something that God is very concerned about and he doesn't want shame, toxic shame, to ruin your life or to ruin my life. He doesn't want us living with this deep sense of despair. So what does God do? God counters shame. God counters it with a counterintuitive, paradoxical plan. That's what he does. And, and we see him lay out this plan in the book that we've been studying in 1 Corinthians. You know, the church in Corinth, was, it's just like the church in Houston. It's just like we're look, looking into a mirror, the issues that they were dealing with. So the folks in Corinth, they, 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 they wanted to talk about spiritual power. They wanted to talk about spiritual gifts. They wanted to talk about Instagram and celebrity pastors that they were following. And Paul was like, no, we're not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I want to talk to you about the counterintuitive wisdom and power of God. I want to talk to you about the cross. The cross. So look what he says in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians. He says, so it is with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. So that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. God's power. You see, the problem that Paul faced, the problem that Peter faced and John and all the early uh, preachers, evangelists, when it came to getting the message out, the Christian message, the problem they faced wasn't that Jesus died. That was not the problem. Jesus died for you. Jesus died for you. That wasn't the problem. The problem was how Jesus died. It wasn't that Jesus died. It was how 
he died. They knew the resurrection, the fact that Jesus was alive, meant something radically different. So they had to reinterpret the entire story, their entire experience with Christ in light of the resurrection. That's wonderful. He's alive. He is who he says he is. He was who he says he was. He is the son of God. But they still had to deal with this problem, massive problem, of how he died. You see, the Bible was written in a time in the Greco-Roman world where there was a honor-shame cultural dynamic. And we know very little about that unless you're from Japan or someplace like that. You can kind of have a better understanding of an honor-shame culture. But Jesus was crucified on a cross. And what crucifixion was, it was a way of publicly shaming someone who had the audacity to rebel against the government of Rome. They said, okay, you want to lift yourself up? You want to push back against Rome? You think you're all that? We're going to lift you up on a cross. We're going to strip you of all your clothes. We're going to whip you. We're going to torture you. And you're going to die a naked, humiliating death in front of the public, in front of everyone, to show that you're a rebel, to show that you are cursed, to show that you are less than. So even the reality that Christ rose from the dead didn't erase or didn't quell the tension of how he died as an outcast, as a slave, as a foreigner on a cross constructed for common criminals. He was tortured on the tree of shame. Tortured on the tree of shame. So one of my favorite verses in the Bible is Romans 1.16. And for a long time, I misunderstood Romans 1.16. Paul wrote there, for I am not, what? Ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. I thought it meant ashamed to be well, I'm afraid to tell people about God. You know, and Paul's saying, oh, I'm not afraid. I've got courage. No, he's not saying that. What he's saying is, I am not ashamed of the shame associated with the cross and crucifixion. To the Jews... It was a stumbling block. The Messiah, the king, crucified on a cross as a rebel, as a criminal, shamed to the Greeks, the intellectuals of the day. you got to be kidding me. It's foolishness. It's a folly. It's offensive. It's ugly. It's grotesque. It's less than. Paul never backed off. Paul never backed off. Though Paul was a brilliant 
theologian, though he was versed in philosophy, though he deeply knew the cultures of his day, both the Hebrew culture as well as the Greek culture, Paul knew experientially in his life, in the lives of others, that the power was in the shaming of Christ on the cross. So if shame can make us hate ourselves in a deep and despairing way, listen to this, the cross is able to heal us and heal you in a deep and hopeful way. The cross of Christ is able to heal our shame. So how do we heal our, our shame? And again, today we're just, we're just, we're in deep waters. We're in the deep end of the pool, right, today? But we're simply, you know, scratching the surface to change metaphors or analogy here as far as how deep we can go into this. But the question would be, if I have this shame that's inside of me, and we all have shame on some level, we're all hiding. We, we all don't want to be exposed. What do we do to deal with it? What do we do to deal with this toxic sense of shame? Well, one of the reasons God has given us community is so that we can be ourselves in front of others. We can find someone in our community who has experienced the truth and grace of Christ, who we can share our stories with, and there's healing there. Brene Brown put it this way. She said, if we can share our story with someone who responds with empathy and understanding, shame, this silent killer can't survive. So a part of your healing from shame and my healing from shame is the ability to tell our story, what we believe is a shameful story to someone else who can hear that story, empathize with our story, and embody, incarnate the grace and love and acceptance of God. I was talking to a friend of mine about this recently. I said, you know, it's interesting. We have the shame inside of us and we hide, right? We, we fig leaf, leaf it through perfectionism or narcissism or whatever we find and hide or through alcohol and pills and, you know, fighting and violence or however we're trying to hide our sense of shame. But yet when we verbalize that to someone else, it's almost like, you know, the, the monster is defeated because more than likely they're going to share their story with you. And you realize, hey, I'm not alone. It's going to be okay. There is hope. And there's healing. Another way we deal with toxic shame is through really meditating and reflecting and praying through 
the shame of Christ on the cross. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer, right? The author and finisher, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Check this out. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. How did he endure it? What does that verse say? Scorning its shame. Scorning its shame. And then he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. (laughs) He entered into personal shame. He experienced the most shameful and humiliating act that man and all of his cruelty has ever devised outside of the city, unclean, unworthy, rejected, despised, humiliated, mocked. He hung on that cross and entered into shame. He did that personally. And then because he was the son of God, he was able to do that universally and cosmically that we might be healed of our deep sense of shame and rejection. We sing about that a lot in here, right? I am accepted because he was rejected. He scorned shame by shaming shame. He knew he was being shamed. He knew the way the people were viewing this as a shameful and ugly, disgusting act. But he knew he had to go through it to honor the Father and so that we could be covered and accepted by the God who doesn't want us to live and walk around with all this toxic shame. The cross is the wisdom and the power of God. Jesus, absorbing shame on this massive level so that we on a personal level can be forgiven and accepted and come home to him. And when he was a long way off, a long way off, filled with shame, He came to his senses. And he said, I'm going to go home. And he went home. Dirty and muddy and caked in shame. And his 
father ran to meet him, hugged him, gave him the robe, gave him the ring, covered him with love and acceptance. He covers our shame. What would life look like for you and for me if we could live beyond that shame? What would it look like if we could live in the shadow of the cross of God's great love and his great hope for us as forgiven and covered people?